Um, we're going to be looking in, in the book of Genesis this morning, this morning, this evening. See, I actually do that as a joke with people. I say, hey, good morning, and, and it's the evening just to see what they say. But anyway, uh, to see if people pay attention. People pay attention to what you actually say when you greet them. But uh, it is actually this evening, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 is the, the text. You can see that there in your notes. The title of this message is A Dangerous Doorway. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a little bit of a lingering uh, chest stuff, so uh, hopefully it doesn't come through too much. But this uh, passage is about Cain, it's, and, and so a dangerous doorway, Cain's foolish loitering. And I was thinking, practically speaking, practical Christianity. Um, I, I actually teach a course out of James, right? Um, primarily the text is James in my, in my Bible course that I teach at, at a Christian high school. And uh, so that was taken. So I'm like, well, there's plenty of other places, too, that we can go to. And I thought it'd be good to go all the way back to the very beginning. I think you can learn a lot early on when you learn about the first things. But uh, let's, let's go, but, uh, first things first, let's go ahead and read the passage together. I will read out loud. If you follow along with me, I want to I wanna give you the context here so that you're familiar with what we're going to be talking about in the next few moments. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering, but unto Cain and unto his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with, his, with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out, of this, out, of, out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. That's a really powerful statement there. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord of the Lord. Uh, from that point on, again, you don't see Cain uh, really being a part of the story any further. Um, so I was thinking about this, this whole passage really talks about the idea of loitering around in the areas of sin, uh, the things that we do, the places that we go, the things that we see, maybe even the people that we hang out with, that ultimately lead to some real trouble when it comes to sin in our lives. 
Um, and uh, I, was, I was taken back to the time when I was a, a, a child, and so I grew up, those of you that don't know me very well, I'll just share with you a little bit about my childhood. I grew up on the Big Island, uh, specifically on the west side of the Big Island, Kailua Kona. And so uh, in Kailua Kona, there's not a lot to do. There's pretty much the beach. And so most of the time when we had time off, uh, my, my father was, of course, a church planter, and so we spent a lot of time doing things for the church. But when we had some time off, we would almost inevitably, because my dad really loved the beach, we would head up to the beach. And so there's a very famous beach up on the north part of the western side of the Big Island um, called Hapuna Beach State Park. Has anyone ever been there? Hapuna Beach State Park, maybe a few of you. It, uh, if you look it up on TripAdvisor, it's actually the number one ranked beach in the United States. Uh, it, it's one of the best beaches in the world. It's usually ranked in the top up there. And we had, so we kind of had the privilege. It's this really, really big, long, long expanse. Um, there's no beaches on, on Oahu quite like it, other than maybe a little bit on the North Shore, but um, it, it's this very long, flat, open expanse of just pure white sand. And, and uh, <clears throat> as, a, as a child growing up, and I, I distinctly remember a number of times uh, going to the beach, and this is always uh, during June, July time frame, maybe somewhat into August. Any of you know what happens at beaches in Hawaii, June, July, August, something that you might have to look out for, something that you might want to be careful of? Jellyfish. Okay, so Portuguese man of war make their visits every year to the beaches in Hawaii around that time frame. And, and there's quite a few of them, particularly on the west side of the Big Island. And uh, so as a child, I, I remember the first time I, I ever got stung by jellyfish. Um, we were out in the water, and uh, I, I somehow got this, like, I mean, it was like excessively long tentacle. It was just a super long tentacle. And I managed to like spin myself around and get wrapped up in it. And it wrapped its way around my entire body. And uh, anyone here been stung by, by Portuguese man of war? Quite a few of you. Okay, you know it's not a pleasant experience. The thing that I can liken it to is maybe, maybe like a hornet. Um, if you get stung by a hornet, that's really painful. This is, it's like being stung by multiple hornets all over your body. And so I had this thing wrapped around my body. I'm like six years old and I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs. Um, now, we knew the dangers, but, you know, back in those days, and I don't know, maybe some of you are still this way, parents are like, whatever, they'll be fine. <laughs> we, we'd go out. My, my brother used to ride his bike all around Seattle when he was like eight years old, and my parents didn't care. Those were back in the days. Um, nowadays, you don't let your kids out of your sight for the most part. But anyway, um, Back, so it, these are kind of, yeah, the warnings are out there. It's not a big deal. And as a kid, like, you don't really think about these things, right? So you're like, it's not like you're thinking in your mind, well, if I go out, I might get stung, or I might catch some really good waves. Hmm, which one is it? You're not thinking about getting stung. You're thinking about, I'm just going to go out and have fun. You don't think about the potential dangers. You're more focused on the fun. You kind of trust the authority figures in your life to, like, tell you yes and no. And when they say no, you get disappointed about it. You don't really care that it's for your benefit or for your good. Uh, so you just kind of do whatever your parents uh, warn you. Do whatever your parents let you do. And if they warn you and tell you not to do it, you don't do it. And then, um, but that's not the only time. I, I've been stung many times by jellyfish. I've lived in Hawaii a long time. Um, as an adult, it's a little bit different. So as an adult, you kind of go out on the beach and, you know, if there's warnings out, uh, you, might, you might check, particularly if you're this time of, uh, of the year, July, August, uh, July, June, July, August, somewhere in that time frame. And, and, and so nowadays what I do is I'm a little, we're a little bit more careful, right? So we go out to the beach, we have our kids, maybe we're at Bellows or somewhere like that. And what do we do? 
okay, let's take a walk down the beach and let's see what we find, right? What kind of danger is there really here? And so you walk down the beach and, and, and oh, oh, you spot one and there's one. It's like, okay, that's just one though. Okay, so if I spot too many, right? Now you're making a calculation. It's like if I see too many of these things, I know that there's, that there's maybe a little bit too much danger and you kind of go through this like mental calculation. Is it worth it? Like we're here at the beach. We're already here. We want to have fun. We want to go in the water. But is it worth the risk? And so if you start to see a lot of them huddled together, you might say, whoa, okay, that's a little bit too much. But you kind of make this calculation in your mind about whether or not the danger is, is worth, what are the odds that I end up getting stung? And I, I share with you that analogy because to me that, that really has a lot to say about sin and the dangers of sin in our lives. As young people, as immature people, when it comes to sinful behaviors, you don't think about consequences. And by the way, this is a physiological thing when it comes to the brain. Young people don't have developed brains. And the brains don't have the ability to, to carefully and accurately calculate disastrous consequences of certain behaviors. And this is why people who are young engage in much more dangerous activity uh, it's not just that they have less to lose, like if you're older and have a family. It's that your brain doesn't really evaluate danger the same way. And so this is why it's very important that parents help their children understand, right? But as you get, um, as you get a little bit older, you, you, you calculate a little bit more. Maybe you're a little bit more careful about, about what kinds of activities you engage in. You're worried about the danger and so on and so forth. So I, I think of this like we oftentimes, when it comes to sinful behaviors in our life, We'll do the calculation. We'll do the math. We'll evaluate the odds. Is there a lot of danger here? Is there not too much danger here? How badly is this going to potentially cause me to fall? Look, here's the thing. When it comes to Cain, I can promise you right now, Cain did not do the math on the danger of disobeying God. And I want you to understand this. This is one of the things I'm really going really to drill down on in this passage. Cain's sin started really small and not terribly significant in terms of action, in terms of what he did that was wrong. But boy, did it blow up really quickly after that. And why did it blow up? It blew up because he never once in the process took, a, took the time to fix the real source of the problem, which was his heart. He didn't address the problem with his heart. If anywhere along the way he would have addressed the problem, which was with his heart, then perhaps possibly things could have turned out differently. So um, here's a kind of an important opening statement I want to share with you. When you choose not to obey God with a right heart, you set out on a very dangerous path. Now notice what I said, not just not to obey God, but there's an important second statement there. When you choose not to obey God with a right heart, you are potentially setting yourself on a really, really dangerous path. It's not only about the things you do, it's about the motivations that are behind them. It's about the heart. And so we want to kind of focus on that a little bit. So number one, uh, the first thing we want to talk about here, mankind's responsibility. Mankind was responsible to bring an offering to God. We see that in verses three and four. In the process of time, it came to pass, it came brought of the fruit, and then Abel brought of the firstlings of his, of his flock. So, again, going back to the very beginning, all people throughout all time have been responsible to bring 
an offering to God in some way, shape, or form. It hasn't always looked exactly the same, but all of us are responsible to God in some way. Uh, Cain and Abel, it was simple. It was bring an actual uh, physical offering of produce from their whatever they were producing. So uh, Genesis 4.3 says here, in the process of time, and maybe a more direct translation of that Hebrew text would, would be rendered at the end of days. So not in the process of time, at the end of the days, that would seem to have a clear reference to the appointed time, appointed period of time in which they were supposed to bring the offering. So more than likely what happened here is Adam, their father, had instructed his sons to bring a sacrifice to the Lord at the eastern entry of Eden at the appointed time. And what was the appointed time? It was probably the Sabbath day. Um, it was most likely, and that's why we have like, a, already we have this structuring of, of the way things are to be done. That uh, at the end of the Sabbath, you are to bring a, a, a sacrifice of some kind to the Lord. Um, regardless of the particular, so that's what it would mean by at the end of the days, at, at the end of the week, essentially here, at the end of the appointed time, the last day of the week, of course, is the Sabbath day, uh, sat our Saturday. Uh, regardless of the particulars, it's clear that both men understood that they had a responsibility to God. Right? So both of them are motivated or moved to do something. Uh, furthermore, both men, so they take action. We see them bringing an offering to the Lord at the appointed time. Cain does it just as his brother Abel does. And again, throughout history, people are responsible to bring their offerings to God. Now, again, we're not talking solely about money, although that's one aspect of it. But whatever it is that God has commanded you and I, we are responsible to bring that to the Lord. You don't get it. Uh, nobody gets a pass. Like we don't. It, it doesn't even matter. Uh, to be honest, it doesn't even matter whether you're saved or unsaved. Now, as those who are Bible-believing Christians, thankfully, we know God's word and we understand what He requires of us. But everyone, regardless, is responsible to bring offerings to the Lord of some sort. So, uh, it is absolutely critical in maintaining a proper relationship with God. And. If you love God, then you will do what it takes to make sure that your relationship with him is in the right place. Amen. That means bringing him the offerings that he has asked for. It's really important. So um, in the days of Cain and Abel, there was uh, no Mosaic law to keep. There was no great commission. There was no book of Matthew. They didn't have any of that. They just had simple instructions, right? Just like the very first instructions in the garden were simple. Eat of all these trees. Don't eat from this one tree. That was, so again, what was Adam's offering to God there? What was, what was Adam's responsibility to God there? To just simply obey what he had said, to maintain the garden. And that was his offering. Then falling into sin now, it's to bring these sacrifices. So they're still responsible. And I ask you the question right now, I'll just once in a while I like to pause and just a little bit applicational. What is your responsibility? Do you know? What is your responsibility before your God? What offerings are you required to bring to him? Can anyone share with me, I, I, this is a little bit interactive here, can you share with me any passages of scripture or any concepts that you know from the Bible that declare, like what are some specific things that God has asked from you? Just go ahead and shout them out. Train up your children the way they should go. Okay, so training children. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Can you tell us the passage for that? That's okay. That is such an important passage of scripture. The only reason I'm asking is because you should write this down if you don't know it. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So the idea here that, again, in the Old Testament, they brought dead sacrifices, right? You killed the animal before it was offered up on an altar. But God says, don't kill yourself. I want your life. I want you to give everything, I want you to give me everything that you are, everything that you have. I want you to commit your life to me. So I want you to bring a living sacrifice. So, um, and, 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 and any others real quick? Medit- meditating on God's word day and night, you're referring to Psalms? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a number of passages in the Psalms that say such things. The Great Commission, where's that found? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? So some of the things that are part of our, our, our mission. In fact, really, it is the mission of our church, right? So we have, we have responsibilities, certainly on an individual level, to raise up our children, to not be conformed to this world, uh, to meditate on the things that the Lord has said to us. And we have corporate responsibilities as a church to fulfill the Great Commission as a group. That means going out, meeting the lost, bringing them to Christ, sharing with them the gospel, baptizing them, and then teaching them God's word. These are your offerings to God in this day and age, in this era. These are the things that we must be doing if we are to maintain a right relationship with our God. So, and there, there are others as well, right? But uh, again, you guys mentioned, I just put a few here so that we could definitely touch on those. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. What about one more? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4. Each one of you should possess his vessel. In other words, be careful what you do with your body. Your body is holy because the Holy Spirit dwells within it. You don't treat it however you want. You treat it as though it is not yours, but it is God's who is using you as a vessel. Hmm, really important, really important uh, statement of how you bring that offering to God. So your body itself is a living offering unto the Lord God. Important. All right, so... <clears throat> that uh, hopefully it helps, helps you to understand that we are responsible for, to bring an offering before God. And we do this on a daily basis. In the Old Testament, they did it primarily at certain festivals or at certain feast times when offerings were required to be brought and the husband or the man of the hu- household would bring them on behalf of the family. But now we all can offer directly to the Lord our God. And that's, that's actually a privilege. That's a great privilege. Secondly, the next thing that we're looking at here is, is Cain's problem. So the second main point I want to talk about, Cain's problem was an impure heart and a wrong view of God. We see this in verses uh, 4. The second part of verse 4 and, part f- and uh, verse 5. <clears throat> and the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his cont- countenance fell. Now, let's establish a principle here because sometimes when we study out this passage, people may have some differing views on this. We aren't told what about Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable. So throughout, uh, commentators have tried to kind of speculated on this. Was it that Cain was told, that that Adam told them that they had to bring a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice? 
That is obviously very reasonable in terms of the Mosaic law, because in the Mosaic law, there were blood sacrifices that were required for the sins of the people, but there were also other free will offerings that were to be offered. They could offer grain. They could offer, uh, in some cases, even wine or, or the fruit of the vine, right? And so uh, there were different kinds of offerings that they could bring. We're not specifically told here in the text that Cain knew he was supposed to bring a blood sacrifice and didn't. So I think we always want to be careful when the Bible doesn't speak clearly. We want to get back to the heart of the principle and really evaluate the things that we can know. So if it were that, but if it were that Cain was supposed to bring a blood sacrifice, how was he going to obtain that? Well, he was a farmer. So how would he obtain a blood sacrifice? He probably would have had to go to his brother, right? And, and get a lamb or, or something from him and then bring it. Um, some just say it needed to be the best of his crops. And Cain brought from his produce something less than the best. But this much is certain. Either way, Cain didn't do what God had told him to do in the proper way. He didn't do it with the right heart. That much we know for sure. And here's why. And this is why this is really important. Because whatever Cain was told, if his heart was right, he would have done it. Right? So you don't do all the things the right way when your heart's not in it for the right reasons. Now, I know the Pharisees were often thought of as like, they, they, they had everything going on right on the outside. Behind closed doors, though, we know that they were fakers. They were liars. Right? So they were, they, they were committing all the sins behind closed doors. Um, but a person, you, you're just not going to bring the right offering to God. It doesn't even matter um, what the offering is in particular. You won't bring it to God the right way if your heart is not in the right place, if you're not doing it for the right motives. The reason that Cain did not provide a proper offering is not because he was asked to do something that was hard or he just couldn't make it happen or he didn't have time to meet up with his brother or whatever it was. The reason is because he simply didn't want to do what God had asked him to do, period. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to do it his own way. And I think you have to understand that because this is actually really relevant for us when it comes to the things that we offer to God. He didn't want to do what God had asked him to do. If the Lord asks you to bring an offering, if the Lord, for example, asks you to do some difficult task which you feel you can't accomplish, like, this is just beyond me, Lord. Like, I, I, feel, I feel a burden, but you're asking me to do something that's really, really hard. Can I tell you this? If you commit to do it to the Lord and you begin taking the first steps, like, you don't get to take all the steps at once. You just have to take one step at a time. But if you start taking those first steps, can I tell you the Lord is going to make it happen? Look, nobody ever, nowhere in the Bible does it say, do these things in your own strength. In fact, it says exactly the opposite. The Lord will make a way. The Lord will strengthen you. The Lord will provide for you. All you have to do, honestly, is bring a willing heart. You just got to be ready to do it. Take a step, take whatever step you can, and, and the Lord will, will bring you the rest of the way. And, and so there's an, a lot of old analogies like, you know, you can't, you can't steer a ship without, if it's not, the ship's not moving and so on and so forth. I think these are all good analogies. They help us realize unless you have the right heart and you're willing to take some steps forward, yeah, sometimes things seem impossible, but the Lord is always going to fill in the gaps, so to speak. Or the Lord really does the whole thing because our life is even um, a gift from him. But continuing on here, um, the Old Testament in, in particular is full of examples of God asking his people to do impossible tasks. Did you catch that? It's all through the Old Testament. Lord, are you, are, are you serious? You're asking me to do this? Yeah. 
Lord, that's impossible. I know. That's why I will be with you, right? That's why I'll be with you. And you can think of many examples. I mean, Abraham was asked to do some things that were just, you would think of as crazy if you value leaving your homeland and going to a place where you don't even know where it is, but, you know, you'll get there eventually. Okay, Lord, I trust you. Offering up his own son. Whoa, whoa, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. When it comes to Gideon, kidding me? Beating an entire army, the biggest army in the world with 300 men? Nah, doesn't happen normally, right? Moses, so on and so forth. It, it just goes on and on, right? Why does God give you these narratives in the Old Testament? To show you that not only can he come through, but he does come through every time. You just have to be willing. You just have to be willing. So now, think about this uh, as, we, as we move on in the text here. Contra there's a contrast here that's really interesting. Consider the description of Cain offerings versus uh, Abel's offerings. And, and I love this because the Bible is so subtle sometimes, but there's just a lot of power in its subtlety. Um, it says this, Abel brought an offering of his best stuff. So if you look in verse five, uh, verse, uh, sorry, verse four. And Abel, he brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. In other words, what that's saying is he brought the best of his flock. He brought the fattest of his flock. He said, this is what, this is what the Lord is worthy of. This is what the Lord is worthy of. And then notice what it says about Cain. Um, and, and, and Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. <laughs> it doesn't say anything like, uh, and I'm not trying to read into the text, but think about this. It doesn't say like, you know, he brought the biggest, biggest, fattest zucchini or the biggest, crunchiest carrots that he had. Whatever, I don't know what he was growing in the ground. But uh, it doesn't say any of that. It just says, it clearly says Abel brought the best. And Cain also brought an offering. Cain brought an offering, yeah. And, and I think that's really, really telling. Um, so offerings to God involve two things. Some kind of physical thing to be offered up, again, whether that's our bodies or, or whatever it is, whether it's our money or time, it's some kind of physical thing that is to be offered up and the heart motivation that is behind it, right? It has to be two things. Please don't ever think that one of those things is enough. You can't claim to have the right heart motivation and then not offer anything that, that is sacrificial of you. And vice versa. You cannot come and bring God things when you're doing it for the wrong reasons and have it be acceptable unto him. It just doesn't work this way. You cannot come to God, into God's presence in any acceptable way if your heart's not in it for the right reasons. Um, if your heart is right, you absolutely will follow God's instructions and you will bring a wonderful offering that is an encouragement to you and glorifies God. But if your heart is rebellious, you cannot possibly bring an acceptable offering. Cain decided to come into God's presence his way, not God's way. That's the bottom line. As a result, this is really important. As a result, Cain was making a clear statement about who God was to him. Catch that? Cain was making a very clear statement about who God was to him. It was a statement of God's worthiness. In Cain's mind, God was not worthy of bringing something worthwhile, something costly, something beautiful. You simply cannot get around the fact that your offerings to God, whatever they are, are your representation of your opinion of his worthiness. One more time. You can't get around the fact that what you bring to God is a representation of how much you value him, how worthy is it. And this is the whole principle behind the concept of worship, right? 
Uh, is God worthy of something great? Or is he worthy of maybe something that is okay? Look, here's the thing. Even if Cain brought the second best carrot and the second best zucchini, or anything there was the second best, it was still a clear statement about who God was to him. It's because who gets to keep the other one? Me. I get to keep the best, but Lord, you can have second best. That's pretty good, right? Second best? I mean, come on. I've got 50 carrots here. I'll just keep this one, the best one, but you can have the second best one. Man, that, that speaks volumes about who's most important. And a rebellious or an idolatrous heart will always result in an unacceptable sacrifice. Always. I notice, notice we use the word idolatry here because part of idolatry is not just, again, not just things we put up on the shelves, not just uh, pictures that we have on a wall that, that people might worship or pray to or whatever. Right? Idolatry is anything that is in the place of God, and that includes me, myself. Um, much later, God addresses this problem. So in the book of Isaiah, God addresses this problem a little bit more directly with his people uh, who are in many cases bringing a technically correct sacrifice. This is one of the most striking there's some passages in the Bible that just really stand out to me. And so I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's right. Isaiah chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, <laughs> this is quite a opening salvo that God gives to the prophet Isaiah. Right? This is right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, a really long book of the Bible full of interesting prophecies and discussions about Israel and its nature and you know, things that it's doing wrong. And so God starts out like this. You ready? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Why are you just stomping around with your animals in my, in my, in my temple area? Why are you doing this? What's, your, what's the point? When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity even in the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul, you ready for this word? Hateth. I hate your festivals. Now, who gave the festivals? God. God gave him the festivals. We read about it in Leviticus and in, in, in Exodus. But God says, I hate your festivals. Um, they are a trouble unto me, and I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. God says, you guys are bringing me the offerings. I'm sick. I'm full of it. I I've just, I've had enough. Stop it. Just cut it out already. You're coming to me with your, with your wickedness and your evil, and you're expecting that by offering up something to me, like just the act of the offering itself, is somehow we're good. <laughs> and so God says, no, no, this is not the case. This is not how it works. Um, so it, it's, it's really, really clear 
that um, the Lord is not purely looking for only the, the object. Now, I thought it might be helpful here. I'm going to just share with you a few things. I'm gonna, I don't know if these are actually in the notes, but if they're not, uh, I want to share with you. Here's some things that you can do with an impure heart or a wrong motivation. You ready? So let's just kind of number a few things out here. Number one, you can neglect your Bible reading, right? Why? You can neglect your Bible reading because maybe other things are more important to you. Than, than God's word. I know that sounds like I'm being like very passive aggressive there. Other things are more important to you. But, but really, let's, let's be honest about it. You have time. We all have time. It's a matter of making time. You can skip a church service. You can quit your job. You can be rude to someone. Or you can ignore some responsibilities that you have. We could kind of go on like that. I'm not here to just enumerate all the bad things we do. But like, these are all things you can do with an impure heart, right? And, and in fact, the fact that you have an impure heart is resulting in those things, that our hearts are not right. But, so these would be obvious to anyone, but here are some things that would be on the same list that you can do with a wrong motivation or an impure heart. You ready for this? You can do these with an impure heart or a wrong motivation also. You can read your Bible. Number two, you can attend a church service. Number three, you can accept a job offer for the wrong motivation. Number four, you can give money to the church for the wrong motivation. Number five, you can do something nice for a loved one or a spouse with the wrong motivation. Number six, you can even pray the sinner's prayer with the wrong motivation. You notice I said pray the sinner's prayer? You can repeat a mantra. You can, you can say something along those lines. Um, so keep this in mind. Cain did the right thing, so to speak, at least as far as we can tell, but at least in terms of bringing something before God. But he became angry when his works were rejected by God. He did not receive the approval from God. And I want you to catch this. Here now is kind of where a pivot point was. Here was a really critical point. When this was pointed out to him, he had a choice. What do you do after it's been pointed out to you that you've done something wrong? You don't have the right heart. He ends up in a much worse spiritual place after this because he doesn't accept the correction. Notice that? So what started as one relatively small sin is now building, much like snow rolling down a mountainside, right, an avalanche. It's beginning to build and build and build. That leads us to the kind of the third, third made point here, God's warning, God's warning. There are two responses in verses 6 through 7. So back to uh, Genesis chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7, one more time. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, but thou shalt rule over him. God asks Cain a series of three rhetorical questions. I love rhetorical questions. Do you love rhetorical questions? Okay, some, some of you got the joke there. Okay, anyway. <clears throat> um, God already knows the answer, right? And, and by the way, Jesus made a habit of this as well. It's a thing that God does, and, and, and I love it. So if God already knows the answer to the question, then the question would be, why does he ask the question? The question is, there, it's intended to be a thought-provoking thing, right, for the person who is being asked the question. So <laughs> a great example is the book of Job, right? God asks Job, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? 
Uh, no. Uh, can you pull out Leviathan with a hook? Mm, no. Okay, so what's the point of all this? To get somebody to realize you've got a problem. You need to think about what your problem is. Um, in this case, God asks Cain a series of rhetorical questions to force Cain to think about what is going on in his heart. Okay? Pause. Here, this is an important moment for you. You need to think about what's going on. Why are you so angry that it is showing on your face? That's what God says. Listen to Cain. Why are you wroth? Why are you angry? In fact, why are you so angry that your face can't even hide it? Like, he's probably turning red, right? Like, really, really upset, maybe embarrassed, certainly angry. Um, If you had done the right thing to begin with, if you had done the specific thing I commanded you to do, this is what God's really saying to Cain, wouldn't everything be fine right now? Like, we don't even have to have this conversation if from the very beginning you'd just done what I'd asked you to do and you did it with the right heart, then we, we wouldn't have to worry about this. You wouldn't be angry, and I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. And again, any of you that are parents are familiar with this kind of process, right? Um, if you had just done the right thing, we often say to our children, and we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, and I know you don't like these lectures. Anyway, God does this for Cain to get him to think about what's going on. Now, for me, as a teacher I, uh, at a Christian school, I get... Um, I have to tell students to do a lot of things, and, I, and we, have, we have quite a few policies, right? And so many of my policies I have uh, printed out in a syllabus at the beginning of the year. Um, and, I, you know, and I go through them with the students, and I say, make sure you do this. Make sure you don't do this. We don't do this. And so one of, one of my personal policies is no, no cell phones in the classroom. And I, and I tell my students, I say, look, I'm going to make this really, really simple for you and, uh, so that we don't have any problems moving forward. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When you come into my classroom, take your cell phone and put it in your bag. If it's in your bag, we're not going to have any problems whatsoever. And I tell them, I say, if you leave it in your pocket, then you will be tempted. You you know how this works, right? You will be tempted to reach down into your pocket at some point during the class period and pull that phone out. Maybe when you think I'm not looking or maybe you'll just forget. You'll be tempted to pull that out and look at the thing and then then that's going to become a violation. And so we, uh, we do have a a conduct system there where they get things called demerits and but my part in this is I always try to uh, look I always try to have a conversation I hate actually going right to the discipline um, right to the discipline right to the code of conduct and now there are times when I have to it's pretty clear there's been an obvious violation I had just spoken with you or I'd recently spoken about this and somebody went ahead and did it and at that point it's just right to the student conduct right I mean I'm sorry I still talk to the student but I say look we're not we're not going to debate this this is what it is but I usually try to have a conversation especially if I'm out and about uh, with students and I, and I just say hey what was going on with that what do, you, you do you do know the policy right and so here's I, I always I get two responses all the time right especially when it comes to cell phones one is Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> really, you didn't know. Another one, though, is, and so that one, I, I'm usually not very forgiving of that one because everyone signs the, a sheet of paper saying, I understand what the student code of conduct is. But anyway, th- the second one is, um, is uh, oh, I, I forgot or I didn't even realize I was doing it. And, and, and I think about that, and I was like, you, f- you forgot or you didn't even realize you were doing it. Now, that seems reasonable, right? So anyone can forget something in a moment. Um, you can, we can forget. It seems reasonable. But as an example, if you chose to have your cell phone in your pocket on your person or maybe hidden under your binder, what does that show about your heart? You got me? 
And this is the conversation I have with them. You chose to keep something that would be a little bit dangerous within arm's reach. It's a choice you made. And that said something clearly about your heart and where it was at. Because if you were interested in following the policies and making sure that, you know, you, you were, and I try not to lay on too heavy with this, but you had respect for me in, in, in the classroom that we're trying to conduct, then you would have a- absolutely put that phone away, right? You wouldn't have even had it out and about. Oh, but my mom texted me. Oh, but it was really important. It's like, it's always really important. Always. Rule number one, it's always really, really important when a student breaks the rules. But anyway, um, just one of those things. Um, how about this? So thinking, thinking about that through and then bring it back in here. When God warns you in his word about the destructive consequences of sinful behavior, when God warns you, as he does throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament as well, the destructive consequences of sinful behavior, how are you doing in, regarding t- in regards to heeding those warnings? How am I doing? Am I taking them seriously? Do you have the phone kept safe in your bag, so to speak, or are you... Tonight, as we speak tonight, right here in real time, are you keeping some sin areas just within arms, just within reaching distance? Do you have some areas like that? Hmm, I mean, this is really practical, right? Because if you are keeping sin just within arms distance, like you've said, well, I, it, it's awful ways, I'd have to reach over to, to, to grab it, but you know you've kept it within arms distance. It's done intentionally, right? Pay attention to what God says here after his three rhetorical questions. Back to our text. It's, it's really important. If thou doest not well, what? Sin lieth at the door. If you fix your heart right now, you can get this issue under control. You realize God actually is like, giving a tremendous amount of grace here? Hey, you brought me a wrong offering. God had every right to step in and just smack Cain right there. You didn't do what I told you to do. And it shows your heart. You know, God is merciful, God is gracious, and God says, why are you mad? You need to be really careful about the next decision that you make in this moment, Cain. You need to be really, really careful. You've been confronted. God has revealed it to you. God has shown it to you. What you do next is critical. Um, If you fix your heart right now, you can get this issue under control. If not, you are walking dangerously close to the edge of a precipice, and believe me, you don't know how deep that is. Brother Tim talked about this same principle a few weeks ago, if you remember, if you were here on on Sunday night, you're right on the edge of that thin red line. You're like wanting to nudge right up to it, and I just used kind of, he talked about the thin red line, and and I love that analogy, and I'm talking a little bit more about the keeping that sin within arm's distance, right, but it's the same principle, and again, we developed our, our, these these, uh, studies separately, so the Lord, I think, laid both of these things on our hearts. Um, if you, seem, if you think that you can just walk on the edge of that red line and, and keep your balance and somehow avoid whatever is crouching behind that doorway as you, as you nudge right up to the door jam, as you nudge right up to the edge of the line, as you, keep, as you maybe draw a little bit closer to whatever that, that sinful behavior is, then this is for you. The warning here is crystal clear. Sin is waiting to pounce. And now when something pounces, it's a surprise. When animals are out in the field, when a lion is out in a field, it doesn't walk right up to a gazelle or walk right up to a, a wildebeest or whatever it's trying to eat and uh, just kind of like show itself, right? It hides. It hides in the tall grass. It waits until it's close enough. And then it's too late. So 
this is the true of sin also. Sin is, and by the way, sin is not like, okay, sin is not like some outside force, right? So we could think of this as like sin is like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right, but then there was just this sin waiting, waiting on the outside, and it, and it just caught me by surprise. Where does sin come from? Say it loud. Our hearts. Sin comes from the heart. It's not an outside force. Sin is right there. You are giving it foothold in your life. This is a problem with you, Cain. It is not a problem with outside forces that are beyond your control. It's not. It's a problem with you. So we have to remember this as well. If we don't take steps to subdue these desires within us, if we don't make efforts to avoid those thin red lines, those open doors, that, that ability to reach out and grab that sin, however you want to put the analogy, if you don't take steps, it will rule over you and you will fall again and again and again. And at some point, that fall is going to be great. Again, we don't try, I don't, I don't think it's terribly effective to lead with fear or to, to, to warn everybody with fear, but you got to understand, there is truly fear in the Bible when it talks about the disastrous consequences of sin. It's there. It's all through the Old Testament about people who refused to do what God told them to do and came to a great fall. So uh, that, that, that's a little bit negative. We'll get to some of the positive later. I promise you, I promise you. So, uh, but moving on in, in the text, point number four, and this is a little bit larger section of, of the text, God's judgment, a curse. Okay, so this is more than just some bad things happened. This is a curse. I want you to catch that. Ultimately, Cain did not heed God's warning. So we, we know the rest of the story. I'm not necessarily going to take the time to reread the whole passage, but you see in verse 8, Cain took his brother out into the field. He murders him. Cain did not heed God's warning, and the results are as disastrous as you could possibly imagine. I mean, honestly, it doesn't really get much worse than this. It doesn't. Verses 8 through 16 demonstrate very clearly two severe consequences of Cain's foolishness, of his wickedness, of his sin. Number one, Cain killed his brother in a violent, brutal way. And this is almost hard to understand, right? Um, <laughs> the heart of a murderer resides in mankind. I, I, I distinctly remember a discussion I had one time with the, with the student school, and I always want to be careful in, in how heavy I, I come off on students, and I, I told them, look, I, I, I'm thankful that God has done a great, you know, as I was speaking with a group of young people, I said, I'm thankful that God has done a work in, in my own life because I know how lazy I am, I know how wicked I am, I know how in some cases how violent I could end up being. You know, I, I know that I could be a murderer if not for God's grace, and, and we all could be murderers, and, and one girl very, very clear said, no, 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 I could never be a murderer. I would never murder anyone. And I said, really? You want to be careful? Have you ever had an evil thought towards someone? You, you can go to Matthew chapters 5 through 7, right? Have you ever had a wicked thought? Did you know that that's where it begins? You might say you'd never murder someone right now, but here, here again, I don't think Cain w woke up that morning thinking, I'm going to murder my brother before the sacrifice, right? There was a progression that happened here. But it's there. It's in the heart. It's ready to pounce. It just needs the right... Motive, uh, the, right, the right promptings. So Cain 
kills his brother in a violent, brutal way, and, and I won't go into this, but the text talks, uh, the word used for the way that Cain kills his brother, kills his brother, uh, there was a lot of blood that was shed. It might have been with a rock. We're not sure exactly how. It doesn't really matter. What matters is he basically turned Abel into a bloody mess. I mean, this wasn't just like, oh, oops, what did I do? This is like, I'm going to make sure that you never stand up and walk again. And, and it, was, it, was, it was harsh. Number two, Cain was cursed and became a vagabond. He was cursed, and he becomes a vagabond. <clears throat> now, the first one, Cain killing his brother, shows that Cain, because he refused to address the problem in his heart, only compounded sin upon sin. He's just adding sin upon sin upon sin now. Cain starts with deception. He lures his brother out into the, well, you, you could really go back to the, the opening sacrifice, right? So he starts with, with uh, failure to obey God. Then he continues with deception. He lures his brother out into a field, faking that, hey, let's just have a conversation. Hey, let's, let's have a little brother-on-brother -brother talk. Let's just hang out together. Then he rises up against his brother, murders him in this violent, bloody manner. Then he lies to God in a very sarcastic and self-righteous manner. You catch that in the text? Where's your brother, Cain? Oh, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh my! So pause for a moment. <laughs> Consider the mercy of God in this point, the grace of God at this point. Consider the grace of God. For anyone, again, people in the world talk about God as, as harsh and this or that. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Any one of us at this moment, if we had received an answer like that, and it was within our power, we would put this guy down in a moment. I mean, you, you, you lied, you, you disobeyed, you lied, you murdered, and now you want to come to me and give me a sarcastic answer about what you really did? As though I don't know what's really going on here? Just amazing, just amazing. Um, so consider God's grace in all this. Uh, we, we would have responded, I'm sure, very differently. But even here, God demonstrates mercy. And make no mistake, from this point until the minute Cain draws his final breath, because God determines that Cain will not be killed for his sin. From this moment until Cain draws his final breath, he has a chance to repent and get right with God. As long as you have breath, you have a chance to make things right with God. God gives that to every man, to all mankind. It's part of his grace and mercy. But it, in any case, the text says that God does place a curse on Cain, and it would now be impossible for him to produce anything from the land. Basically, you were a farmer before, that's all you knew, that's all that Cain would do, and now he wouldn't be able to farm anymore. The thing that he seemed to value most was taken away from him. <coughs> and again, there might, be a, there might be a principle that I don't want to drill too far on that one. Look, when, you, when we refuse to give God the things that he is due, don't be surprised if we don't end up getting what we want either. I mean, it's not a, we're not in it for getting what we want. But you see this, examples of this in Scripture where um, because somebody does not recognize with humility the grace that God has bestowed upon them, the blessings that God has bestowed upon them, those things get taken away. And that is common as well, too. Um, so if Cain was disappointed with God in some way before, remember going back? He's disappointed with God. He's angry with God. His face falls. His countenance falls. He surely is much more disappointed with God now. He th maybe he thought that by taking matters into his own hands, he could, like, make the situation turn out the way he wanted. I don't know. What was he thinking? I mean, maybe if I kill Abel, my brother, then now, now my sacrifice is best, right? My sacrifice was second best. Maybe now my sacrifice is the best. I mean, it doesn't work that way, right, with God? We know this. 
Um, you don't compare yourself to what other people are doing, but whatever Cain was thinking, it's, it's hard to know. He took matters into his own hands. He did it his way. And whenever you and I do that, not do it God's way, do it our way, we're always going to achieve the opposite result of what we're trying to achieve. Always. You don't take matters into your own hands and get the result you're hoping for. Just, again, remember that. It's really important. Um, you can do it God's way or you can do it your way. Yeah, that's a, that's a choice you've been given, but you cannot do it your way and receive God's blessing. You cannot do it your way and receive God's peace. You cannot do it your way and receive God's contentment, the things that he promises to give to you when you do things his way, right? You can't have all the blessings and do it your way. Um, so, important concepts there. And finally, point number five here, forgive me for time. <laughs> I knew this was, a few, I had a few pages of notes here. Um, a warning to us. Last, we're going to look at a warning to us. Now we're going to, we've, we've had a little bit of application sprinkled in there, but I want to come directly and talk about us. A warning to us is to guard your heart. Guard your heart. It should be noted here that God, in his mercy, again, one more time, had given Cain an opportunity to amend his original sacrifice. Cain, you didn't do the right thing, and you know you didn't do the right thing. Why don't you try again? You have an opportunity. God had given him an opportunity to do this. In fact, God almost implores him. It's like, it's like God doesn't have to beg anyone, but if I can use this terminology, it's almost like God is begging him. Look, do, make this right. Do it the right way, or else there's a problem that will come as a result of this. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> check your heart. Check your heart on this issue and come back to me once you've thought things through. Um, there's an old proverb that people used to say. Uh, I don't know if people still say it anymore, but uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Boy, is this true with Cain, right? Well, if we'd just taken, if Cain had just taken a moment to stop and evaluate, and if you and I would just take a moment to stop and evaluate what we're doing and the reasons we're doing it for, boy, could that potentially preclude us from, from being involved in a whole bunch of things that we're going to regret later on as a Christian church, as people, as individuals? If we just stop every once in a while and, and, and take stock of our heart. Uh, this proverb explains very well the, the natural course of sinful desires, and so an, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure always, always do things the right way. And when, it, when you find out that you haven't done something the right way, don't get mad, just fix it. Come back and God, God, God is merciful and gracious all day long to people who are humble and have repentance in their hearts. Um, so in James, there's a similar, similar analogy. So James chapter one, verses 13 through 15, and it, this is one of those passages that I use with my students. <coughs> As I teach this cl class on James, real quick, we'll read that together. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. <clears throat> Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You catch the analogy there? It's pregnancy, or it's like life cycle, right? You play around with it a little bit at the beginning, and at some point, you've gone too far. And from that point on, it's just a natural progression. 
it's just a natural progression. That woman who um, has now become pregnant will bring to term that baby. In this case, it's not a cute, chubby little baby that we all love. Um, <coughs> sorry, just, just, just thought for a moment of Brian and Anya, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's not a cute baby that we're all waiting to meet and love. This is destruction. This is evil. This is, this is the, the disastrous consequences of sin. And you give birth, and that thing grows up, and it leads to your destruction. That's just, again, the Bible's so full of rich analogies that help us understand these things. We live in a world, coming back to, to Cain and Abel, and I want you to think about that, that concept of the door, because the door, I know I've gone through a lot, a lot of analogies, the door is set before us as a really important image here in this passage. There are a lot of doors set before us. Lots of them. These doors are so prevalent and so wide and so open and so inviting and easy to access. I'm talking about sin now. Doors. Sin is waiting at the door. Um, things we see, so I just, I just put together a brief list. And we, 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 you can think of many others, I'm sure. Things we can see on the internet and in private. Uh, no longer do you have to walk down to Dark Street at, night, street, street at night or you have to go into a gas station uh, and, and go to the hidden rack that's behind or whatever like it used to be. Um, every, everybody probably has heard about those in the past. That, that's the way. Now it's just as simple as a click on the phone. It's so easy to access. The ease of connecting with people through messaging technology and even apps that are designed specifically to help people have affairs with one another. I mean, this is disgusting. It's sick, but it's what the world values. It has become so easy. Again, the flick, just the little click of a button or a little, little tap of the screen. The ability to hide behind a keyboard and kind of spout things off, um, whether it's through email or, or social media or whatever. Um, allowing other people to take care of our responsibilities through government and um, working for a large company, maybe taking a little bit extra off the top, maybe a, a, a shirking a little bit, uh, nobody's going to know, maybe cheating on taxes, you know, nobody's going to know. But there's so many ways in which we have these temptations in this world. And uh, one more, couple more, more passages to think about. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Uh, let's read this real quick. As we're close to finishing out here, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if they write, I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members per should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Is Jesus advocating self-mutilation? Of course not. This is a classic example of Hebrew hyperbole. The, the idea here is do whatever it takes to remove the temptation from your life. Whatever it takes. You can't afford it. You don't want to afford it. This idea that I can keep things within arm's distance, I can walk up to the red line, I can walk right by that door and hang out and loiter by it and still remain okay with God. 
And again, one of the questions I get asked by students all the time is, how far is too far? And my response to students is always the same thing. I don't mean to be rude, but you're asking me the question and that's the problem. I think everybody knows what I, what, what I mean when I say that. You're asking me the question because you want me to somehow as an authority give you a right or privilege to go up to a certain point and yet no further and then you're okay. You don't even want to ask the question. Remain pure. Then Romans 6, 11 through 14. Romans chapter 6, 11 through 14. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members. I'm going to pause real quick as I read there. Does everyone understand what the word members here means? The physical parts of your body. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Reckon yourself dead to sin. And let me tell you, where does reckoning yourself dead to sin begin? Where does it find its success? The answer is, in by removing the temptations. Otherwise, you're just asking for trouble. You keep those, not within arm's distance, not walking up to the red line, not hanging out in the door, you're removing them from you. As long as you have a problem with it, remove it. Now, if you're standing anywhere near the door, you're too close already. You're too close. Please don't think that you or I and this, this all applies to me. It, it, there, there's no level of maturity uh, in the Christian life where you no longer are subject to the lusts of the flesh or to desires or to temptations. There is no such thing. Everybody can experience them. Now, they, they can grow weaker over time. I will say this. They can, but we all have to understand that this is how this works. We must remain um, at, at great distance even from these, these types of behaviors. Um, don't think that you can stand at the door, kind of hang out nearby, loiter, pound on it, knock on it, kick it open, but still remain perfect in the eyes of your God because he sees your heart. You want to hang out by that door. Your heart's not right. Your heart's not right. Don't think that you can guard your testimony in such a circumstance because not only will it impact you in your relationship to God, but it Bring shame upon God's name when his Christians, when his, when his followers, when his children do these kinds of things. So um, if you're anywhere near that door, you are already in the process of losing the battle. The battle's already getting very close to being lost. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that the battle hasn't begun. You're in the battle. You've already been in the battle. So you're demonstrating that your heart is wayward as you go near that door. Just hanging out near the doorway shows this. The mature Christian, it's an important statement, the mature Christian who is committed to fighting the sin nature stays away from the temptations, stays accountable to God's people. The mature Christian. Notice I said maturity because it is a hallmark of immaturity when a person says, I can do it alone. It's a hallmark of immaturity when a person says, I don't need a church, I don't need other things, I don't need these people to hold me accountable. 
is a hallmark of immaturity, the person who asks for how far and not farther. The stronger the temptation for you, the greater the distance you need. The greater the distance you need. And that's important. We are far too comfortable with loitering near doorways that we know will lead to destructive ends. So I encourage you, stop loitering. You know, somewhere in your life, something going on with you. You know that there's a situation that causes you to struggle. Stop hanging out there. Don't hang out near those doorways. Hope it's been an encouragement to you. I know this study was greatly encouraging to me. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. 